Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the plates to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and through their lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Uh, also, welcome back in the new year. Uh, I hope that everyone enjoyed the holidays and is diving into 2019 with uh, at least some bit of optimism. We always try and be optimistic around here. Uh, as per usual, my new year is starting off by heading to Las Vegas to attend CES, the massive technology show that takes over that entire city uh, in early January every year. Uh, and as per usual, uh, probably a week or two after the show, we'll have our CES wrap-up podcast, uh, once again with reporter Rob Pegorero, uh, who's been going to CES even longer than I have. Uh, but this year, uh, we've got a special guest right now. Uh, this podcast will be released on the opening day of CES, though, truth be told, we're recording this a few weeks prior to that. This is before the new year. Uh, welcome to Behind the Curtain. Uh, and my guest today is Gary Shapiro, the long-term president and CEO of CTA, the Consumer Technology Association, which, of course, is the organization that puts on CES every year. Uh, and we're not just having him on the show to talk about CES, of course. Uh, Gary actually also has a new book that's just come out called Ninja Future, Secrets to Success in the New World of Innovation, uh, which is something of a follow-up from his previous book from, I think, five years ago, entitled Ninja Innovation. Uh, this book is excellent, and having read it, I expect that this conversation will be actually a great follow-up to the final podcast that we had before the break, which was all about disruptive innovation and whether or not Silicon Valley had figured out the secrets of disruptive innovation yet. Uh, if you somehow missed that podcast, well, you should go back and listen to it. But uh, we came to the conclusion that no, <laughs> while some companies may have outrun disruptive innovation here and there, the idea that anyone's actually figured out how to regularly beat back disruptive of innovation is unlikely to be true. Uh, and that's part of the reason why I enjoyed Gary's book so much. It covers a lot of ground, uh, but right up front talks uh, a lot about this very issue, how the biggest and most disruptive innovation, uh, innovations quite frequently take companies, often big companies, led by very innovative thinkers, completely by surprise. Uh, it also talks a lot about the regulatory environment, uh, both good and the bad, uh, for enabling more innovation, and also has a bunch of suggestions for both innovators and policymakers, which obviously fits in exactly with the kinds of things that we like to talk about on TechTurt. So, Gary, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mike, for having me, and congratulations on over 20 years of amazing coverage. You're one of the journalists in the upper echelon that... that loves and covers the same things we always talk about, which is policy, technology, innovation, and rapid change. And that's what the CES is about, and that's what this book is about. Cool. Uh, so let, let me start by, by actually asking about the, the ninja thing, because uh, your last book was Ninja Innovation, and this one is Ninja Future. Uh, why ninjas? Well, ninjas were ancient Japanese warriors who won against extreme odds, and they had to change what they were doing no matter how much they planned. Uh, they had to work as a team. They had people of diverse strengths. Uh, and I use that as an analogy because it's an imperfect 
um, comparison, but a long time ago, my family and I uh, studied Taekwondo, which is actually Korean, but our editors at HarperCollins told me you could use the license. Um, (laughs) And that taught me similar things about how to fight and survive and on our ways to black belts in karate, which we got. So we put those together, and the Ninja Innovation book was so successful, and the ideas caught on so much, and we have focused on innovation, frankly, as an association for over 12 years now, uh, as our primary mission is to encourage mm-hmm. innovation, that this seemed uh, a natural and Plus, as you know, these things work. The publisher wanted it to be perfectly frank. Uh, They really love the Ninja title. And when I almost withdrew my first book proposal uh, several years ago, because a couple of my uh, board members, female, said it was a failure and didn't appeal to them, the same day Mm. the, the publisher accepted it and quite frankly said, I love Ninja. Anything with the word Ninja on it sells. So that's still true. Several years later, uh, my kids used to watch Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and that's why uh, I, we coined the Ninja word. And, and honestly, with my kids and employees, I've always talked about think like a ninja, meaning um, plan for the future. But if you see an obstacle or a brick wall, don't just say there's a brick wall. Figure out how to break it down, jump over it, become invisible, get superpowers, come up with a solution that's non-conventional. And that's how people get ahead. That's what, in my view, makes them ninjas, is they are creative, they're innovative, and they see obstacles as opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's that's an interesting way of, of looking at it. Um, w- one of the things in the book, at the beginning of the book that I thought was really interesting is you go through this, you know, idea of, you know, sort of the unknowns and, and how, you know, even companies that were really innovative before suddenly, you know, no longer look so innovative uh, and are taken by surprise by by different things and sort of trying to, you know, look forward and you know, understand what what to expect and and how to continue innovating. Um, so, can you talk us through a little bit of that and sort of how you think through the process of of how to keep companies innovative? Well, you're you're right, absolutely. Any list of the business greats of a few decades ago doesn't contain the same companies anymore. And I recently heard Jeff Bezos speak about that, saying his goal was to make sure Amazon's around a hundred years from now rather than just surviving twenty five years. Um, and I. I think good leaders like him and like the early founders of Intel about paranoia, only the paranoid survive, they recognize that that they, their success is not manifest destiny. And it's the same thing I think we should approach with our country. We're just not given this God-given right that we'll be number one. You have to fight for it every day. There's people that are hungry. And even if you look out and take a picture of the world, which we all do naturally, you assume the world's not going to change and you could change and nothing else will change. Well, the fact is everyone else is looking at the same world and they're changing. So you have to run fast just to stay in place. And I think the characteristics of the leaders that will succeed are those that embrace the future. They recognize, first of all, that every company today is a tech company, no matter what industry they're in. They they set real measurable goals. They don't fall in love with strategic planning, which takes a lot of time and then gathers dust on shelves. They realize they set big goals, and they try to reach those goals by responding quickly to marketplace changes. And they they pay attention to their customers very carefully. They listen to them. Uh, and they also leverage their strengths no matter what the size of their company. They encourage themselves to reach out out of their comfort zone and, and go through different industries. That's what CES is designed for. It's for many, many different vertical leaders to get together and see what's out there in the future and forge the business connections, which allow them to succeed because 
Every successful company today is doing it through connections outside their vertical. And they have to, especially, and this is the toughest thing for big companies, is to fail fast and not waste a lot of money on a, a product or a category. And this is where smaller companies and entrepreneurs have a big advantage. They're much more frugal with their money, and they'll drop something quicker. And you also have to listen to others. Um, outsource to save time. That's really important. When so many people have knowledge that, and they're always staying up to speed, no one company can know everything. And that's why uh, we live in a world where outsourcing to people that are more skilled is the best thing to do. But you should also, of course, hire well, hire people that are different than you, focus on diversity. You develop your employees. Every one of your employees is an ambassador. Um, and you also have to be human. You have to Show your employees and people you're dealing with and partners that you care about them as people. You have to be compassionate in the face of failure and recognize that failure is, and this is what the United States is good at, it's the only country in the world, perhaps other than Canada or Israel, where you fail on the way to success and it's considered education. That's good. Uh, Teams are very important. This is the MBA value I see today, which I didn't used to see, is that they're really training people to work on teams, to contribute, to understand different cultures and languages, and that's super important for companies getting ahead. You're essentially tapping the best and the brightest from around the world. Um, And it's always good, and this is what you try to do with your kids as a parent, is to instill confidence and curiosity. Curiosity is really important. Um, You have to be willing to make tough decisions and be bold and fail, and you have to be committed to innovation and changing things. You can never, ever be complacent, and complacency is the enemy of innovation. Yeah. Um, There's an interesting thing. You're talking about failure and sort of the importance of learning from failure and understanding stuff. Um, You know, one of the things that I think is tough for people to understand about innovation is that it always seems like a really clear path in retrospect, right? Looking back at all the innovations, you can see step by step by step how it gets there. But like in the present, it's it's always much more difficult to figure out where those steps are are going to be. And since, you know, every year at CES, there's there's all of these things that are going to be sort of the next big thing. Um, And and this, this, I might be putting you on the spot a little bit here, but if you look back, you know, over the past decade or two decades even of of things that were big at CES that actually didn't pan out, uh, that that turned out to not be as big of a deal, or um, you know, uh, you know that that a lot of people thought were going to be the next big thing, and then and then um, wasn't. That might be interesting too. Can you think of anything that that didn't quite pan out the way you expected? Um, there are examples. I like to talk about the successes that I knew with 100%, like HDTV uh, and the compact disc itself, which I was really my introduction. Um, and, and, of course, you know, increasingly great smartphones and things like that that we've seen at CES. But when I think of the failures, I, my biggest mistake that I was enthusiastic about a, a really stupid product was the Microsoft Bob, the dancing paperclip <laughs> that annoyed many of us in the 1990s. And I remember telling Bill Gates what a great launch it was. And I learned later that it was his wife that actually was her product when she was working at Microsoft huh. and she was pushing it. No one would tell Bill as a bad product. But that was my embarrassing moment where I really screwed up. On the other hand, where I took a position, and I, and I still believe I was right, history has proved me, is a 3D television I thought was a, a terrible f- product. It was an okay uh-huh. feature, and I think we ruined our industry's reputation about it. I spoke against it. I kept saying it's not a feature, it's overhyped, and it doesn't work for you know, many, many different reasons. And um, I offered to resign over it because I, oh, wow. um, I couldn't be the cheerleader for it. And 
I it was just it went against everything that I stood for in terms of my own integrity. So I'd say that was a, a overhyped failure, uh, but not one that I went along with. Right. There are other ones that I, I, I'm pretty good at, at recognizing to to be successful. It's not only about the product; it's about the entrepreneur, the company, yeah. the management team, and the timing. Some products just come before their time. Uh, if you think about the 1990s and all these pet dot coms, and every business plan said <laughs> assume broadband. Well, right. broadband did not exist in the 1990s, but yet every business plan assumed it did. So we had the collapse, which affected our whole economy at the end of the 1990s. But that, I felt, was foreseeable because no one cared about profits or revenue. And it was just – it was like I thought the world was going crazy. <laughs> so now I see so many products though, that I'm excited about, whether it's uh, robotics or self-driving vehicles and everything leading up to self-driving. Um, and as well as uh, all the, the breakthroughs we're seeing in, in data with artificial intelligence mm-hmm. and, and healthcare. But one of the building blocks, of course, is artificial intelligence that we will see at CES pervasively. And, of course, we'll see 5G. You know, every 10 years there's been a new G, starting right. with 1980. And the last one was 4G in 1910. So 2020, certainly, you'll see more and more 5G, and that will be with its lower latency and, and quick fat broadband. What it won't be is a panacea for rural community because it just requires so many little dishes, frankly, that you can't, there just will never be enough for rural America. But it does alleviate some of the stress on broadband. It's kind of a bigger version of Wi-Fi, if you will, in terms of relieving the Verizon and AT&Ts from having to build big cables everywhere. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, there's definitely a lot of talk about 5G and obviously, you know, better, better, faster broadband is always, always going to be important and obviously then enables a whole bunch of other stuff. I mean, I think it'll be interesting, you know, I, you know, you could argue that, that a lot of the big innovations that we see today, uh, you know, in the last few years that have come out of the mobile space really were only possible because of the combination of, of, you know, good mobile broadband and smartphones together. And so it'll be interesting to see sort of what the what the next generation of, of real broadband enables. Um, so let's let's move on to the, um, the the regulatory aspect because that's obviously something that we talk about a lot, and and you're obviously focused on a lot as well. And the book has a uh, a lot of discussion on that. Um, there, there are a whole bunch of regulatory challenges, and there are a whole bunch of you know potential pitfalls that that may be coming up. What in the regulatory space, uh, I, I hate to keep going to the negative, but we'll start there and we can go to positive later. But you know, what concerns you the most on the regulatory front? Uh, in December, I attended a meeting of the, the big developed countries uh, that are the Western democracy, Canada, the U.S., France, Germany, uh, Britain, Australia, New Zealand. And the focus was artificial intelligence. Now, AI is a building block technology. It's an ingredient. It's, it's going to be huge in so many ways, and it's going to solve so many of the world's problems. It's going to make our lives better. It's what's really behind self-driving cars and, and the future of robotics and, and, and major breakthroughs in healthcare about how we treat the worst diseases based on our genetic makeup and age and sex and all the other things that, that go into what works for, for different people. And it's just going to do so much for us. But I, I swear I felt I was attending the anti-AI meeting <laughs> because it was all academics and privacy advocates and government policy people who all they were doing is talking about the, the parade of horrors and how it not only has to be regulated, it has to be uh, focused on diversity and inclusion 
and cyber protection and transparency of how every algorithm decides. It must be how every decision is made. And according to even one of the big country's uh, economic ministers, it must be, serve 100% of the population from the start, not just 60%. Hmm. And I, I just kept thinking back to what happened 10 years ago when uh, President Obama was first elected and the Democrats controlled Congress, and they had this crazy proposal that every product that could be hooked up to the Internet would be usable by anybody with any disability. So every product had to be, which is physically impossible, you know, someone who can't hold things, someone who's uh, visual impaired or blind, someone who's deaf, to, to put all that in one product was just a physics impossibility. Mm-hmm. And we fought against it really hard, and, and lucky for us and the world, and frankly the disabled community, we got it changed so it was more reasonable. And thankfully, all these new things came out with smartphones and things like that, which are tremendously changing the lives of the disabled community in, in ways that would have been blocked had government mandated a design. Uh, design features. And I'm, I, I kept thinking about that. And I'm thinking artificial intelligence, first of all, 90% of the use cases have nothing to do with all the good things they want. You're talking about things like flying airplanes or driving cars or building uh, better factory things or solving healthcare problems where none of those issues matter. Uh, but they're focused on a few things like facial recognition doesn't identify African-American faces well. And, you know, that's a, there's an example that they always give or letting people out of prison or putting them in prison or, or stopping people for security risks could be racist or sexist or whatever. Or because of the problems in France uh, recently, everybody has to be served. So they're all um, very focused on the problems. And my question to the group, it was Chatham House Rules, which means you're not allowed to quote anybody, but I will quote myself, uh, to the entire group was, you spent the day talking about this, about all the ways you have to regulate it, um, but you do realize that none of this, most of this has nothing to do with how AI will be used, number one, and number two, China is out there with none of these privacy restrictions, with you know, 1.4 billion people and millions of engineers focused on solving these problems in an incredibly... Yes, there's a copying culture a little bit, but it's getting better. But they're all entrepreneurial and they're trying to figure out commercial ways of exploiting anything. They will be there way ahead of us. And we are going into a non-competitive direction. And the European regulators that are pushing this whole approach are the same ones who gave us these incredibly choking uh, restrictions on the Internet, like the right Mm -hmm. to be forgotten, and GDPR, which is choking many, many small companies, not necessarily large ones. It's just a cost. But for small companies, they're stopping to do business, so they're going out of business in Europe. And it's basically restricting the ability to use data in a way which will serve customers very positively, which reminded me of a conference I was at just a few months ago at the Hague focusing on the internet and sitting at a table where the European Commission, who commissioner that pushed this whole GDPR was said, I spent three years in this and now we've regulated the world because it's extraterritorial. He says, now we're going to regulate AI because we have to do the same thing to AI, what we've done to, to privacy. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I'm sitting there with these two people from Africa and Latin America, and, and they said, oh my gosh, this is the biggest first world problem there is. We love our access to data. We love the ability to go online and do searches. We love the ability to use Facebook and these other products out there. This is a first world problem, privacy. We're trying to get information. We're trying to eat. We're trying to communicate. And these technologies are miracles for us. And you want to raise their costs or take them away for us because you're concerned about privacy. When you're hungry, privacy is irrelevant. 
irrelevant. When you're sick or dying from a disease that could be cured, privacy is irrelevant. When 30,000 people in the United States are getting killed by car accidents every year, privacy is a little less important in the car than it would, would be in other environments like the home. So my view of the world is let's have some reasonable discussions. Let's recognize that there's some situations where privacy is less important, somewhere it's more important, and let's be reasonable in our approach to privacy. And I don't want the U.S. to go the way of Europe. We have, you know, five or six times the number of, of truly innovative companies, or we, one of the ways we define that is we look at the number of unicorns per population. And, and frankly, China and the U.S. are killing Europe. And Europe has gone the wrong way in so many different things, and I don't want the U.S. to become like Europe. Yeah. It, 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 one of the incredible things to me is how much it, it feels like um, Europe has decided that, that they have to regulate things to, to the point that no bad can ever happen. Uh, and, and trying to prevent bad means you end up throwing out a, a ridiculous amount of good stuff um, in the process. And, and yet, unfortunately, it feels like you know the EU has really sort of taken over um, in a way that you know when they're doing all of this regulating, it is now you know really impacting the entire world rather than than just the EU, and it's sort of blocking out other parts of the world from from enabling innovation. And I kind of worry that that may sort of force a, a fragmenting of the internet and and a variety of other you know innovative offshoots of of the internet. Um, Absolutely. And I, I worry about that as well. And I worry about the, the future geopolitical discussions and interests will be you'll have China, which is huge, strong, economically growing and frankly, innovative now, yeah. producing literally millions of engineers and has good strategies. And they have a different value system than we do. We focus on freedom and liberty, the right to access the Internet, the right to vote with choice, the right to uh, religion, all sorts of human rights. And we have a relatively clean air and clean water. And it will be China and North Korea, uh, perhaps Vietnam, uh, so maybe some South American countries. And there'll be a battle for the hearts and minds of Africa and the Mideast against, frankly, where what the U.S. and Europe share in common is a, a love in Canada and Australia and New Zealand is a love of liberty and freedom and democracy. And in a world where artificial intelligence is going to be the economic determiner of so much, it seems like that we are going towards the European approach of tamping down the opportunity for artificial intelligence um, I'm not saying all data should be available for free. We have to balance. And right now, the U.S. approach is in the middle between Europe and China. And it's like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. And right <laughs> now, it's like the right temperature. But there is a lot of momentum in yeah. the U.S. And California is leading the way to say, let's, let's go do what Europe does and make it worse. Let's give uh, private attorneys or state attorney generals the right to sue. Let's create all these new rights for consumers. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. The model I want to see is is not China nor Europe. I want to see an American model which balances reasonably innovation and privacy. That produces a competitive advantage for the U.S. that allows us to solve real problems that people have that are life-threatening problems and keeps us safe and also could help our economy and create jobs. And to me, that's the only way to go. And if I don't succeed in that, I will have failed, in a sense, my, in my life mission, if you will, which is to promote the concept of innovation in this nation. You know, we'll benefit from it to the extent that China is our, Chinese are our new masters and they've done everything. Uh, 
my kids are, my wife insists they learn Mandarin now. Uh, but I don't think that's the solution is that we all learn Mandarin. I, I would rather see the U.S. maintain its position in the world. But I want to do that by changing course and recognizing that some of our policies, uh, such as blocking highly skilled immigration, which we've been doing, discouraging the best and the brightest from coming, discouraging trade, uh, are not winning policies for us, in a sense, winning the economic battle. I mean, Canada's figured it out. They're, you know, they're getting our best and brightest. They're advertising. They're gearing towards them. Europe's doing the same thing. Uh, but, you know, 20, 30, 40 years from now, we'll, we'll not serve future generations well if all we left them is a bunch of debt and a history of greatness. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's it is definitely a concerning time. I mean, I think part of this, too, is that, you know, whether it's accurate or not, the narrative about technology, in particular, the Internet, has certainly shifted over the last few years. And it went from something that I think everyone, you know, sort of celebrated and liked and, and people were sort of comfortable and happy with these companies to a story that now everyone is afraid and that these these companies have sort of taken over our lives and they're they're doing all kinds of evil things. I, I think the, the narrative is a little bit out of control, um, but there there are some elements of truth mixed in there um i mean what do you how what what do you think about that and you know are there ways to to sort of you know write that ship uh, because i think so much of that is is part of what's driving the the regulatory environment you're absolutely right there's been what we call a tech lash uh we benefited from president obama's strong leadership on technology issues and and clear love personal love of tech and um and, you know, in my view, he didn't stand up enough for the Europeans, you know, smashing our best companies down with ambiguous antitrust laws. But he did lead the way for favoring tech. And uh, President Trump has been good for business. But, you know, there's there's clearly no love for tech. He's taken yeah. on tech companies directly. Uh, but what we're, what we're up against is the fact that tech, because by definition, technology is disruptive. It disrupted so many existing industries from broadcasters and, frankly, even journalists and old-school journalists mm -hmm. to uh, you name it, who hasn't been disrupted. And so there's a lot of resentment that was building up, and tech was getting all the attention, their stocks are flying. And then, let's be honest, some big tech companies made some big mistakes. Um, you know, the when the news just came out uh, in December that, that Facebook was running a campaign paid for by Russians targeting <laughs> African-Americans so they wouldn't, wouldn't vote for Hillary Clinton or stay home from the polls. I mean, how could you not be, you know, there's some level of correction that's required. I think we all feel that. We all value our privacy and we yeah. all want uh, the biggest, strongest companies to do the right thing. And clearly we have to, as an industry, do better. On the other hand, you know, a handful of big tech companies does not define the, in my view, the 2,200 companies that I represent in the technology industry from the U.S. and Canada. There is a, first of all, 80% of them are small, smaller companies. There's a lot of startups. There's a lot of people providing, you know, great ideas. And you take companies that I consider great. Like just this week alone, I've taken probably five Ubers and Lyfts and four taxis. And mm -hmm. it's a night and day experience. And I'm not boycotting taxis, but 
my life has improved dramatically because of this new service. Same thing with traveling and using Airbnb or VRBO. It's, uh, we have new choices as consumers now, which are just part of our lives because of this great disruptions that technology has allowed that now we just assume. We look at our smartphone and we use so many apps uh, to drive around with ways or to get from one place to another, to order food, to order online. And now we're using uh, smart speakers more and more to, to do many things. So voice is the new medium. We're not done with this amazing transition in technology, but we do have to acknowledge it is disruptive. The only thing that we see our light of is tech is not good or bad, but it is improving lives in dramatic ways. But it's also a tool, and tools can be used for good things and bad things. And there is a role for government. Government, we have never said government should not be engaged. Government should be engaged in many different ways. One is to ensure that we have a competitive environment so we're a leader in innovation and technology. But second is also to protect our citizens, to ensure that there are guardrails and we know what the rules are so that companies can develop products without fear of litigation, without fear of being sued for new government theories. And now we incentivize our government uh, lawyers to create new theories to sue companies, whereas reality, what we really need is say, here are the rules and you meet them. We don't want government designing products, but we want do want government saying, this is fair, this is unfair, this is wrong, this is right. And at the same time, I've never believed in my entire life that legality defines an ethical behavior. And I think too much in the U.S. we've taken a position, if it's legal, it's okay. And I don't, I don't believe that at all. Things are not okay, even though they may be legal. I've seen minority preferences uh, going to millionaires who set up their daughters so they get government contracts. I've had friends uh, pretend they, they needed dogs on airplanes just because they didn't want to <laughs> pay for the dog seat. I mean, what we... In all these things, and even with the Europeans, these are well-meaning rules and regulations that are created to help different people that need help. But then they are exploited by people who shouldn't be exploiting them. And it, it's it, we've entered an era in the U.S. that we didn't have 50 years ago with our parents where they, they had some ethical principles they followed and they, were, they would put their country above their own self-interest. And we still see that by our young rural kids that go off to war. But frankly, I don't see that much in the environment today. And I find that very difficult to wrap my arms around about how we could change the sense of obligation that we have ethically. Um, and it's just not by following and creating new laws. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. It's something that, and, and I've talked a bit about this on the podcast before and a little bit on, on the site as well. It's something I've been sort of trying to think about too, where I, like one of my concerns, you know, having, you know, followed sort of Silicon Valley for, you know, over two decades now it is, and and some people argue it hasn't changed, but to me it feels like a little bit that it's changed where there was sort of uh, a sort of ethical outlook on things in, in terms of what companies were trying to do. And, and it wasn't about like staying within the law, it was focused on like what is what is the right thing to do. And it feels like there are some some companies now that are much more focused on, well, what can we get away with? Um, as opposed to you know what is what is the 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 right thing to do, and you know it it, it creates this this weird situation. Sometimes, you know, sometimes the law sort of forces you to do the wrong thing, and so there are companies that that maybe skirt the the law to do the right thing. So you have all of these different competing factors, but it does feel like it would be nice if if there were a way to incentivize people to just 
you know, act properly. <laughs> well, <laughs> the, I agree with you totally. So the incentive is a journalist like yourself, and you've been so influential, could recognize good behavior and bad behavior and call it out. That's been one of the checks in, in our and how we've been built as a country. And I think. You know, the technology has changed it, so it's more difficult for journalists to do that. The, the old business models don't work. But yeah. take uh, patent trolls. Now, to me, patent trolls are unethical human beings exploiting some challenges in the system. They prey on, especially when they prey on startups and entrepreneurs and smaller companies with, you know, crazy claims. That is about as immoral as selling and hooking kids on cigarettes, in my view. <laughs> they are destroying the fundamental economic yeah. fabric of our society by exploiting, frankly, a legitimate protection for property in a way that serves no other purpose than to, to pad their own products. I mean, it's, um, you know, I was raised in as attorney, and I don't, you know, I think we have too many attorneys in our country. They're very profitable for law schools to produce, our universities. They're the most profitable type of student you could have. And so we just churn out lawyers and churn out lawyers. We have more lawyers per per citizen than any country in the world. By I mean, one out of eleven residents of D.C. is a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean it's it's. It's, it's gotten to be absurd. So we have a lot of lawsuits being filed, a lot of threatening letters, and all that does is hurt our competitiveness globally. And we have to look at things like that and say enough is enough. Let's get some reasonable restrictions in place. Uh, and, you know, slowly we're getting there. I mean, certainly you have focused on the horror of, of patent trolls a lot, yep. and you've called out the good and the bad. And I think that's what we need more of. That's why I love talking to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it hasn't as much as I've called out the bad. It hasn't necessarily stopped the bad, but 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 yeah, I I, I try. <laughs> um it, it yeah, it it is it is it's tough just because I think, you know, the incentive – and I've talked to, to patent attorneys on both sides of, of, of the patent troll issue. And, and you know, even, even the good guys admit, you know, the, the money is so easy on the other side to be a patent troll. It's such an easy way to make a ridiculous amount of money that it's tempting. You know, and and some people do switch sides, um, and and you hear the temptation just because they, they say, you know, I could just take a few of these patents and basically, you know, shake down a bunch of companies, and and that's it. I'm set for life. And Absolutely, it's, and it's not only in in patents; it's in other areas. Like yeah. our healthcare system is totally out of control because we've incentivized people not to care about their costs of their health care. And we've incentivized yep. doctors to do the most expensive care using the most expensive drugs possible. My wife is a retina surgeon and her five doctor practice, they have consciously decided they're probably one of the few practices in the country that use the lower cost alternative drug for macular degeneration, the most common form of eye issue that older people face. And by doing that, they calculate that in a, just a few years, they've saved the American taxpayer $80 million. Five doctors by using the lower cost, <laughs> equally effective treatment. What they've said goodbye to is millions of dollars in their own pocket, frankly. And the joke with my wife is when we fly to her medical meetings and we're in coaching or competitions in first class, we know who's <laughs> paying for it. It's the American taxpayer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yes. We could go down a, a, a whole... <laughs> a whole. Well, the, well, you know, the good news for us yeah. is, and this is one of our efforts, to, it is self-interest. I do represent a lot of companies that are technology companies. We yeah. see an opportunity in healthcare now because we see lower cost alternatives to drugs, alternatives to visiting doctors. We see technology providing a lot of solutions to the cost problem of healthcare. Yeah. And it really matters, especially for rural patients or around the world, frankly, developing countries where you can't get to see a doctor. Um, too frequently or at all, or they don't have the specialists. To, so with telemedicine, with remote monitoring, with 
technology which reduces pain where instead of using drugs this localized with focused ultrasound which to me is a phenomenal technology that basically could you know Pin, narrow in on tumors and extract them as an outpatient treatment for certain cancers and has already three FDA approvals. You have amazing opportunities, but you know what? All these things disrupt the status quo. Yep. They take money away from the existing healthcare system. And the only ones that are you know, seriously looking at them are probably insurance companies, and even those are kind of stuck in their ways yeah. uh, and makes it very difficult. So we have a long way to go still. Yeah, it's incredible. I, I and for years I've talked about this book that that came out. I think in like two thousand four, two thousand five. It's now you know now old and outdated. But it was this book called The End of Medicine uh, by this guy Andy Kessler. I don't know if you. He was a former FDA. No, not not a former FDA. He was a technology analyst okay. and, and investor. Um, and and the, sort of the premise of the book was really interesting. He was saying, you know, he spent you know twenty thirty years looking at and investing in technology, and he recognized the trend of innovation, which is basically things get better, things get cheaper. And you know, he started in the early two thousands after the dot com crash, looking at the healthcare space, and he's like, this doesn't act like any other market because <laughs> he's like, things are supposed to get better and things are supposed to get cheaper, and neither of those things necessarily seem to be happening. And so the entire book is sort of him kind of bumbling around trying to figure out why things are not getting faster and, and they may be getting better but at a much slower pace than than almost any other industry and so he has all these predictions about how technology is going to completely revolutionize the medical space um, you know if the regulatory environment doesn't get in the way and block it and you know it's it's incredible to me that that book now you know over a decade old I think is still relevant because you know what he wanted to happen you see on the fringes and the stuff that you talked about the telemedicine and and using technology instead of medicine for like pain reduction and things like that you know you see that starting to happen but it certainly didn't happen at the pace of of other you know uh, innovative industries um, and so it's it's incredible to me how much that industry is sort of held back by by the way that things have been done um, and it's it's you know for, for an industry that is obviously so central to so many people's lives and, and will be central to everybody's lives at some point um, it's 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 fairly stunning it, it, it would be nice if we had a real revolution in, in healthcare thanks to technology well that's our plan at CES we we're be giving continuing medical education to doctors for the first time we're showing around the alternatives that technology has and and these are as consumer technologies, these are not really expensive. I mean, yeah. who wants to go to the doctor? And think about it, if you have, uh, especially a person that's uh, older, uh, it requires a caregiver. You're, you're taking essentially two people out, you're putting them on roads, it's not green. Um, and if they could be dealt with, in a sense, at home and remotely, you gain a lot. The, the caregiver benefits more. Yeah. It's very difficult to get people out to doctors. And now there's all these amazing alternatives that are out there, and we will get there. We just need to create an incentive structure so that, that people will do it. But people respond to incentives. And doctors are human, as my wife keeps telling me. And, you know, <laughs> one by one, as her colleagues fell for the lure of money to start, you know, shifting how they treated patients to the way that makes them the most money, it's, it's very challenging. But it's not only doctors. It's the entire healthcare system, and that will change. It has to change because today, the rise in healthcare costs is still proceeding very high, yeah. um, and we're not bringing the cost curve down. And we have to do it, or we're going to bankrupt our country soon. Yeah, yeah. Because no. we're living longer. 
Yeah. And, and the other thing the technology would do as we're living longer is, I mean, there are things, you know, remote monitoring, just whether you're, you know, your parents getting out of bed or taking their medication or needs help. Or uh, as our foundation does, we link up people with technology so they could not feel so alone. So they could be connected even by video and chat with other people. It's there's a it sounds weird to say technology is going to contribute more to our, our connectivity and humanness, but it really will, because yeah. there are literally millions of people that cannot uh, are not mobile. They can't get around. They need caregivers. And, and it's not only our country. There's a lot of developing countries or developed countries rather that face a shortage of caregivers and we have to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's 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 a big space. And I think it'll be interesting, an interesting one to to follow. So um, to to sort of wrap up this discussion, I know I could go on forever. <laughs> talking Ask about this I, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so, so let's bring it around to 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 people who are sort of entrepreneurs or, or innovators in terms of, you know, as they look to the future and they sort of prepare themselves for all of these different things that we've been talking about and, and how to deal with these things and how to really, you know, drive these things forward themselves, because that's, that's part of the role of the innovators. You know, what, what recommendations do you have? What should they be doing? As individuals, they should be seeing the opportunities as they can exist in the future, but recognizing that there's change afoot everywhere. And they have to calculate what are the likely changes and, and plan for the future rather than, than aim things at the present. So you don't, you're not, also, you not have to be right, but you have to be right at the right time. I mean, you, you could be there too early. So, but generally, I think as societies and as governments, they also have to figure out what's best. I mean, we know that we're producing millions of kids and billions, if actually one trillion dollar in student debt, and we're training people for jobs that don't exist. I mean, a lot of kids get four-year degrees or, or graduate degrees that are, frankly, they're nice and they feel enlightened, but they're not very marketable. <laughs> uh, we are in almost a full employment situation, so people are focusing on this, but we have to shift to the jobs we need. We need the data analysts. We need the caregivers for the older generation. We need people who can focus on cybersecurity. Uh, we need people who are going to deal with self-driving cars and figure out how to service them and train them and you know, make sure they're, they're clean and keep them going. We need people that get the last few feet. We need a lot of different things in a future society, and we need to train people for those. And yet we're using basically the same educational system we've used for years. You know, Germany uses an apprenticeship system. We should be looking at that. You know, we should bring back the respectability of people who fix things or, or build things with their hands and are, have engineering degrees. And we haven't done that as a society. I mean, the American parent thinks if you don't, your kid doesn't get a four-year or six-year university degree, you're a failure. And that's absolutely craziness. So if you look at who is doing all that stuff, it's basically recent immigrants and, and their children that are doing great things in terms of keeping our nation going, if you will. And we have to recognize if we're going to shut down immigration, as this present administration seems hell-bent on doing, and, and uh, frankly does a lot of American uh, society, we have to at least start training our people to fill those jobs that we need done and also raising the respectability level and thus the compensation of those jobs, which I think will happen naturally in the marketplace. So in terms of what entrepreneurs can do and innovators, you know, you got to you got to build up your teams, do something smart, figure it out, adjust, be clever. Don't get stuck in your old plan and adjust according to the marketplace and be willing to dump things, walk away and move on. And whether you go in and out of big companies or to small companies, and recognize the big companies now, what they love more than anything else is to partner with, invest in, uh, do a deal with uh, smaller companies and startups. That is the huge trend because for a big company to buy a small 
smaller company that's successful. And, you know, you're talking in the multi-million dollars, billions of dollars range now, whereas if they can invest in or partner in early, they're much more willing to do that. And that's what we love so much about uh, CES with Eureka Park and others. We're really putting big companies together with small companies in a very meaningful way. And, and I think more of that's going to keep going on. We also, as a society, have to make sure that we're recognizing that entrepreneurship and innovation comes in large part from smaller companies and entrepreneurs and people with ideas who are unfettered and can make decisions. It requires investment capital. It requires trained people. It requires people comfortable enough to take risks. And you know, always wonder whether your next generation is, is being trained in that mode. Um, so far, so good. But I continue to fear we're, you know, we keep veering away from a good path to a more regulatory path, a more guaranteed, well-meaning social uh, structure path where everybody gets an income no matter what they do and things like that. And that does not encourage innovation. All right. Um, well, I, I think that's a good way to, to close this conversation out. Uh, Gary, thanks uh, so much for taking the time for writing the book, uh, which, again, I highly recommend. I think people who listen to this podcast and who read TechTurt will certainly enjoy it. Uh, it certainly touches on lots of the different topics that we, we write about, more than, than we just covered in, in this podcast. Um, and thank you for your uh, amazing coverage these last 20 plus years in so many different areas that are very important, actually. I mean, I think what you're doing is very significant. I, mean, I don't say this to any other journalist, actually. Is that I, I think it's it matters what you're doing, and you have an incredibly uh, well-informed group of people following you. Uh, well, that's always nice to hear. Uh, we certainly try to, to do as much as we can. Um, and uh, thanks again, and uh, thanks to, to everyone who is listening to this. Um, if if some of you are at CES, I uh, hope you're enjoying it. Uh, if you're not, I'm sure you will see plenty of reporting about it um, because uh, I think a, a, a couple journalists show up for CES every year. Um, and uh, we'll be back with another podcast next week. Thanks. Thank you. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get to grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get to grab a shovel and dig up the tech.